Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. All right. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. You know, there's not many people who love cytology more than I do, but Dr. Kate Baker may be giving me a run for my money. Uh, Clinical pathologists are probably one of the only people besides dermatologists that just adore um, looking at cytology. I was so excited to have Dr. Baker on today, who goes by ClinPathKate on Instagram. It was just a super fun conversation, and we gabbed for like hours before and after. It was just a ton of fun. Dr. Baker absolutely loves to teach vet professionals, and she has a Facebook group called Veterinary Cytology Coffee House, which I'm a part of, and you absolutely want to check out. She recently moved back to Tennessee. Her husband is an ER veterinarian, and she is a mom of two young kids, so she knows that vet mom life for sure. She also offers a numerous amount of continuing education resources through her website, Veterinary Cytology Schoolhouse. So obviously I took advantage having a board certified veterinary clinical pathologist on the podcast today talking about all about cytology and, you know, she mostly is going to look at aspirates of skin masses and it was really fun to talk about her tips for veterinarians and how to be more successful with that. But also I think important, we go over different types of cells that you can identify in general practice and practice at getting really good at looking at your own samples, even if you're still going to send them out. It's just a really cool way for you to enhance the way that you practice veterinary medicine. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this episode as much as I fun I had recording it. Well, welcome, you guys, to the next episode of the Durham Vet Podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Kate Baker on today. You probably know her best as ClinPath Kate. My husband, even when he was like, who are you going to record with today? And I was like, ClinPath Kate. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, anytime I refer to you, I say the Durham Vet. Yeah, I <laughs> know. what was on the Durham Vet? <laughs> the Durham Vet, I know. It's kind of funny. I'm like, it wasn't, it's not very original, but it's just is what it is. I love it. It's catchy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're just, you know, sometimes you don't need to make things so complicated, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is what it is. But no, I'm super excited to have you on. And, you know, what people probably don't even realize half the time I have people on for the podcast is that we've already chatted for what, 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that yeah. is probably just our COVID world where we are all begging for socialization, but even yeah. pre COVID, I think we would probably have just still talked yeah. for a while. Agreed. We already have Agreed. plans that we need to talk about other things more later. More. So yeah. um, it's really yeah. wonderful to finally do this with you and kind of virtually meet face to face after both kind of knowing each other through Instagram. So thank you mm-hmm. so much for giving up your time today to be on the DermVet podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm so excited. I, I listen to your, your podcast, even though Durham is not, you know, in my wheelhouse in its entirety, although psychology, everything, you know, I still listen. I, I like to know what you guys are doing in the Durham world. <laughs> oh, that's so cool to know. I never know, you know, I never actually like yeah. to act ask my podcast guests because I never want anyone to feel bad if they say I've never actually listened to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. That means a lot actually coming from you. Yeah. I'm a, I think it's the Midwest roots in me. Like I'm a super, um, I like to achieve things, but I'm not great at being like, Hey, you should have listened to this thing I put out. Like I kind of just put it out hoping. So, um, yeah, yeah, that means a lot. Thank you. (laughs) So as this amazing, um, popular clinical pathologist, though, I'm sure, yeah, I can see the face. You're like, please don't call me that. Um, (laughs) so just kind of starting because, you know, we're obviously going to be focusing on dermatology. So thinking of things like skin masses and not going into all the other types of aspirates you can look at, because I'm personally not going to be aspirating a liver, um, myself. 
Um, what are skin is what most practitioners are going to be, are going to be seeing more skin masses than anything I imagine, you know, like liver masses or whatever. So definitely clinically relevant. Good. Perfect. Then we'll stick to what we actually know. At least I know for this podcast. Yeah. What are some key tips you think you have for veterinarians just in the sense of like when they're collecting these samples to send to you, what are some key things you think are important with collection, um, in, in number of samples and those types of things? Yeah. So there's a good number of tips here, um, because I've kind of seen the gamut of how people collect, how they submit things, you know, and what what areas that could use improvement, and I don't mean that in a deprecating way, is things I've heard for a lot from um, vets that are like, I just wasn't taught how to do this. You know, it's not, it's not that they don't want to do it, you know, quote unquote, the right way. It's, it's just that the best, you know, the, the ideal way for a pathologist is just not always taught in school. So, um, so I've seen, you know, I've seen a number of different methods and, and gathered like what I feel like is um, the most diagnostic sample and diagnostic method for collection and preparation of your slides. So the first thing I would recommend off the bat is making sure that when you're sending things into a pathologist that you are filling out your submission form entirely. And this seems like, you know, okay, duh, thanks for the tip. But you might be surprised how many submissions I get that have no history at all, um, no description of the lesion at all. Um, maybe just say skin mass or not even, sometimes not even say where it's from at all. A lot of times I can still make something of a sample when I don't have a history or description of the lesion. But if I don't have a site, that's when I start to get really uncomfortable because cells are funny. You can have... Uh, cells can mean different things in different areas. So for instance, if you aspirate a mass, a skin mass, and it's a plasma cytoma, I see a bunch of plasma cells, that is a benign skin tumor. But if I get a submission that's full of plasma cells and it's a bone marrow aspirate, that's a totally different scenario. Like that's a big, that's a big deal if it's full of plasma cells, Um, you know, indicating potential multiple myeloma, you know, a, a more serious neoplastic process. So I need to know where this came from. So always indicate where it is and try to be pretty specific because one thing too, is that if you say, uh, skin mass, um, or, or sorry, not skin mass, but if it says like, um, uh, stifle mass, for instance, I don't know if that means the mass is inside the joint or on the skin near the joint. And that again, makes a difference in how I'm going to interpret the cells and how you in practice will interpret your cells. Um, So knowing exactly where I have one, I had had one submission um, early in my career that uh, it was actually a submission from a past student of mine um, when I was a resident. And, uh, but you know, she, she's great. <laughs> I was like, maybe I didn't teach her, teach her this. So it was my fault. I didn't, I didn't emphasize this when I taught her, but I got the submission and it was like, um, abdominal mass was the site. And that was all the, the history or the, that's all I got on there. And, um, I was looking at it, it as a Friday afternoon and I was like, holy moly. Cause I put the slide up and it was just wall to wall neutrophils, just filled with bacteria. And I thought, you know, I always try to call the vets when it's something that I feel like is emer- like potentially surgical emergent, because especially on a Friday, I just, I'm thinking of myself in their shoes, you know, they may not get that report until Monday morning. So I'm going to try to catch them before they run out of the office to let them know, like, this is a big deal. Your patient has a an intra-abdominal abscess that, you know, you may want to know about before the weekend. Um, and so I called her and I said, Hey, I, I just want to let you know, you know, this is, this is a bigger deal than you might've thought. This isn't an, an abscess. And she, she was like, Oh, okay. And I was like, you know, I just want to let you, like, I just felt like there was a, a disconnect. I was thinking, what am I missing? Well, it turns, she was like, no, no, no this was on the skin. This was like, and this was on a little, just a little mass on the, on the skin of the dog's abdomen. I was like, Oh, okay. So that changes things completely. <laughs> like how, like how worried we are about this. Um, so that's just an example of knowing like where, you know, where exactly you are um, and giving your pathologist that information. Um, and then 
when you're, so one of the questions I get asked the most is how should I prepare my my smears or my samples to get um, the most diagnostic sample? There's several different methods people use when they prepare uh, cytologic samples. Um, the one that I've have found over time to be the most reliably diagnostic is the smear technique, which that's just what I call it. The books call it the squash technique. So you're going to see a lot of different names for this. I don't like squash tech. I don't like the term squash technique because I don't want you to squash anything. <laughs> like I don't want anything to get squashed. Um, but what I'm talking about is probably what most of your listeners do um, because it's the most you know, I get most people do this, but you spray your sample on the slide and then you take the other slide and you just move it gently across in a, in a uniform motion. Um, this, the spreader slide can be either perpendicular or parallel, but it's better to do it perpendicular because um, you get less of that friction um, on the sample and less lysis that way. But um, sometimes I'll hear from people, well, I don't like to do that because I get samples that come back, you know, all the cells are ruptured. The number one tip that you want to keep in mind to help prevent excessive lysis of, of your cells when you're doing your smearing is just don't put any excess pressure down on that sample when you're doing the smearing. And it's, again, it seems simple, but um, I, I had a friend that said, uh, you know, I don't know what's happening um, with the cells because it's, they're just all coming back ruptured and I don't know what to do. And we kind of talked through her technique and she said, you know, I like to hear that crunch because I know that I'm getting like a good smear. And I was like, that's, that's, that's a problem. We don't want to hear any crunching of anything. <laughs> so just uh, when you, when you're smearing, just let the weight of that top slide do the smearing for you. Just smear those cells out. You don't want to put any added pressure down on the slide. Um, and that should really help. And then majority of the cases, you should get a good diagnostic sample that way all cytologic samples are gonna have some degree of cell lysis. It's just the nature of the beast. So if you're seeing cells over here that are lysed where you're just having bare nuclei, you can't interpret those. You have to ignore those. Those can't be identified, but go you know, look around. There might be other areas where there's perfectly beautiful intact cells that you can interpret. So um, another method that people will use is just spraying. And I'll, there's several other ways, but one of the things that I would caution against is just spraying the sample on the slide and not doing anything to it, not smearing it, not, not doing any kind of um, preparation past that, because uh, it always makes me sad as a pathologist when I get those, because I know that the chances of a diagnosis, or at least even a full complete evaluation have gone completely down. I might still be able to make something of the sample, um, but I always, am like, Oh no. Um, because it's so thick, like those little blobs of sample are so thick that I can't really see anything in the little blobs. Um, so I would not do that. Um, and then one other big tip I would, and this depends on your lab that you're using, um, when you're submitting slides, some labs will have slide limitations. So like, um, you know, you can only submit two slides or you can only submit three slides, but definitely maximize the number of slides that you're allowed to submit. I'm going to get, I'm going to get like <laughs> a lot of feedback from pathologists. If anybody's listening, like don't tell them to submit 20 slides for a skin mask. Um, you don't, you don't want to submit like a million slides per site, but don't submit just one. Don't put all your eggs in that one slides basket. Uh, I, I like to shoot for just your general run of the mill cytology sample um, between three and six is a good number. I think most, most cases I'm able to make, um, my full assessment on, you know, three. So I think that's a good number, but if you feel like you need more, go for it. Don't be shy. That's what I would tell people to submit slides. Like, I think a lot of people think, I don't want to submit, you know, more than one, because I don't want to irritate the pathologist, but it's actually easier for me to give information when I have more slides to look at because I can have a full, a full picture of what's going on, you know, um, versus just one slide where I'm like, you know, is this, is this the full picture? Um, or maybe the cells just happen to get lice on that slide and I don't have, you know, a lot of information. So that's a couple of things that I think are, are really important. Those are great. And honestly, 
I, even as a dermatologist in the clinic and some of the direct uh, smears that we do just on a daily basis that aren't necessarily going to be sent to you guys in most cases can echo a lot of that one history, Mm -hmm. right? Like any form of medicine history and writing down our clinical exam would be very similar to what you just mentioned. Like you having a history of, you know, how long has it been there? What does it look like? Do you like getting pictures or I, that's one thing I've always kind of wondered about. I love it. Um, and a lot of pathologists love it. Like I, I have never heard of a pathologist say I'd prefer not to get pictures. Now I will get, sometimes people send me radiographs and I think I'm not upset about it, but I think I don't know. I don't know how to interpret radiographs anymore. <laughs> I can't do anything with this. Yeah. Um, I'm asking them like, what is, what, what am I supposed to be seeing on here? I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat kidding. Like if it's a huge, you know, lytic bone tumor or something, I can see that, but, or I just ask my husband who's an ER, but you know, what, what do they, what do they want me to see on here? But uh, pictures of the actual lesion. Yeah. I mean, it can be really helpful because if I'm seeing, for instance, if, if I'm seeing a, um, you know, if I'm seeing like a, let's see, I'm trying to think of an example, like spindle cells, for example, spindle cells are some of the most annoying cells in cytology because spindle cells can be reactive fibroblasts, which are non-neoplastic cells that look scary. They're oftentimes mixed up with inflammation, um, or they can be neoplastic like a sarcoma and those can look identically. So it's all about like everything else in cytology, all about patterns and what, you know, what cells are all there. It's not just like, you know, making meaning out of one cell, but, um, if I get a picture or, or, or a good description, um, you know, that says this mat, like if I'm thinking, okay, well, these, this looks like it might be a non-neoplastic process, but you describe a cantaloupe size, or I see a picture of a cantaloupe size mass on a dog's leg. I'm going to be going, okay, uh, like we need to, I'm going to give you some more <laughs> guidance on next step, next steps to rule out a neoplastic process that maybe I just can't diagnose on cytology because it's just, that's presenting clinically differently versus if you said, oh, well, this dog was just uh, vaccinated in this area. It's very common to have inflammation and reactive fibroplasia in vaccine hypersensitivity reactions. And if you describe that and or send me a picture well, I'd like a description either way, but if you send a picture too, it's nice to kind of see that together and, um, and I can help you say, oh, okay, well, you can just watch that because this is very common for vaccine hypersensitivity responses. You don't need to jump to that yet. So yeah, it's all in context, just like, just like the medicine that, you know, veterinarians are doing in their clinics. They're, like you said, you know, in your clinic, you're assimilating history. And I know you emphasize that a ton for your derm patients. It makes a huge difference. Um, and I hear sometimes people say, oh, well, I don't want to bias the pathologist because somebody, somebody is out there in the vet schools. I don't, I I don't know. (laughs) It's probably not one person, but you know, saying, don't tell your pathologist like anything because you don't want to bias them. And, uh, and, and that's just, for me, it just couldn't be farther from the truth. It's so important. I, I don't, um, it's kind of similar to if I were to say, well, what about if you just went into an exam room with a client and, um, and they said, what's wrong with my dog? But then they didn't tell you, like you could do an exam, but they didn't tell you anything like why they were there, you know, what part of the animal is, is, you know, what, what is the problem like at all? It's just, it makes things a lot harder um, and can potentially lead to misdiagnosis because you don't even know what you're really looking for. But um, yeah, I'm off on a tangent with that. Okay. I <laughs> yeah. was just kind of laughing a little to myself because I actually have had one client do that when oh I practiced gosh, in California, like walked in and didn't want me to like have the records. And when I started like kind of getting the history, um, <laughs> literally said, well, I don't really want to tell you anything. So I don't want to bias you. I want you to look at the dog. And I was like, Okay. We need to have a discussion of why, (laughs) you know, luckily I'm usually a pretty calm person, um, you know, dealing with clients. Like, I feel like I can kind of, whenever someone comes in, they're like, Oh, they're all worked up. I'm like, I'm going to kill them with kindness. Like, that's just kind of Mm -hmm. my personality. So I'm like, Oh, well, let me just explain to you like why this is important. And then it was fine. But you were saying that I was like, Oh, I had that once. Yeah. It doesn't work very well. I mean, well, and it's, it's good that you explained the reason why, because I mean, that 
if that, I mean, that person had that understanding that that was what was best for the animal and the same with any veterinarian who in the past has thought that that was what was best to get them an accurate diagnosis. You know, nobody's trying to be difficult just for the sake of being difficult or anything like that. It's just, it's understanding. It's, it's, it's talking about it enough to understand why that is helpful and, you know, why, why you need it. And I, and I'm, you know, I get it. If that, if that client wanted some more information about why uh, they probably read it on Google or something like never tell your, never, never tell your veterinarian what's wrong with her dog. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's an important piece of the, the, the puzzle to make sure you include. Yeah. Like just to make sure if someone has this notion, same with what we deal with in the clinic, like, you know, this food or the, you know, uh, uh, the intents and the intentions are usually actually pretty good. There just might be different opinions or misinformation there. And just taking a second, I always like to say, be on the offensive, not the defensive. I'm not perfect at it, (laughs) but just like, when someone says something to you, like, oh, you shouldn't have history or, oh, you know, someone said this and we just instantly want to go into that, you know, mode of, well, that's not what I was told. It's like, we'll just be like, well, this mm-hmm. is what I believe, or this is what I think. Mm-hmm. And we're all allowed to have different opinions and that's what makes veterinary yeah. medicine so great. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I it's love working together. Yes. Working together for sure. It's so, so important. And, you know, we talked a lot about that. You do a ton of teaching through your social media um, and through your courses. So when we talk about cases and what general practitioners are seeing in the clinic, as maybe say they do want to evaluate things themselves under the microscope because it is either time sensitive and, or, or they just want to learn how to identify some of these uh, cells themselves, or if they see a round cell tumor, they want to have an idea of, you know, what it is and they have an interest mm-hmm. in that. What are some of the main types of cells let's say skin masses that you feel like most general practitioners could really feel comfortable identifying? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a little bit of a multifaceted answer, I think. So the first thing I would say is that I really want veterinarians to know that they are capable of diagnosing more than mast cell tumors and lipomas. <laughs> uh, I hear that a lot. It's like, if it's not a mast cell tumor or lipoma, I can't do it. And can't is, and as you know, kind of corny as this sounds like can't is not a good word there because you can, there's nothing like we were talking before we started recording. Like there's, there's nothing special about me that makes me, you know, I didn't come out of the wound knowing how to, how to interpret cytology. I practiced a lot. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time looking through a microscope and that's how I got good at it. Uh, and so I, it's sort of, for me is it's, it's, if you're wanting to learn how to do cytology and interpret more cytology in house, you are hundred percent capable of that. It just takes the time to learn it. So I would, I would just answer that by saying, you know, you, if you're going to do it, you can, and then you should, because it's fun. <laughs> um, but, I, but I know that, you know, time is limited and all those things, but um, if you have a, a desire to learn, just like any area of, of vet med, if you really like surgery or if you really like medicine or like derm, you know, and you really want to invest more of your time into learning more um, about how to kind of do more in your practice, you know, you have to practice and you have to you have to read about it. You have to learn how to do it and practice, practice, practice. So with that, you can do, you can, you can go as far as you want to. I mean, um, I don't think there's any, uh, limit, um, you know, a hard line in the sand of what is a person in practice is capable of. Uh, but with that said, you know, there's, you have to have the foundation. It has to start with foundation. Um, if you want to do more in practice and you want to, 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 for whatever reason, like you said, like you want to be, you just like it. You want to offer that as a, um, a moneymaker for your practice. You want to, uh, um, time sensitive things that are really important that you kind of get that information back. You know, even if you do send it into a pathologist that you need that info back sooner than, than that's going to come back. Um, I would first start with learning basics and it's not just about knowing certain cell types. I mean, we, 
understanding um, or being able to identify inflammatory cells, you know, neutrophils, eosinophils, macrophages, which are obnoxious. Macrophages can look like so many different things, um, but getting comfortable with those different inflammatory cell types. And then as far as neoplasia goes, it's more about patterns. So I would learn uh, the, the patterns that certain cell types present with. So like uh, epithelial cells, you know, they they like to stick together, you know, they have certain characteristics that make something an epithelial cell and then a mesenchymal cell and similarly a round cell. And then once you can identify those patterns, then you can evaluate criteria of malignancy. Are these, you know, is this a malignant neoplasm or is this a benign neoplasm? It's algorithmic thinking. That's the way my brain works. And that's the way that I teach um, this. Uh, that's the way I teach cytology and in my uh, mastering cytology course, that's how we could break through that because it all starts with that algorithmic little flow chart in your brain. When I first started doing cytology, when I was a resident, I actually had this little flow chart printed out and next to my desk. And I used, I looked at it. Now it's just in my head. Um, but it's very basic, but it just takes you through, you know, how do you get to, you know, how, what kinds of things are you looking for to get to um, a certain point in that diagnostic process in your brain and, and where are the limitations? Like, it's okay that you don't always get a straight up diagnosis. If you can, as a practitioner can get to, this is a round cell tumor and I don't know what kind, um, you know, I, here's a couple of potentials. Like I know it's not a mast cell tumor. Or I know it's not a TBT. Like maybe it's a plasmocytoma or histiocytoma. I can't, I can't quite tell. Sometimes I can't tell either as a pathologist, there's just limitations that's great. You know, like that's, that's awesome to get to that, that point, because then you kind of can go, okay, well, next, here's my next steps. So, um, it's more, it's, it's not so much just like learning individual cells, it's learning the patterns and, and where I would start as a practitioner, if you have interest in, in learning those is to start with the basics of learning that algorithm and the pat, the pattern of, of how to read cytology in general. Um, and it'll make you way more confident into how to, how to get through, you know, get, how to look at your samples in house. Um, because let's face it, like, yeah, we'd love to send every single case out to a pathologist. I'm sure. I mean, even if you have an interest in cytology, I, I know a, a lot of oncologists that they, they're very good at cytology, but they send all their samples in to a pathologist because they need that, that backup, not only like legally, but also just to make sure that they're on the right page. Cause this is all we do all day long. So, you know, we, we see things that maybe other people don't see. Um, but that's just not the reality for every case. Not every case can be sent in. Owners are not always going to agree to pay for that. And that's, you know, on the, on the clinician to do your best. Um, that's a super long way of <laughs> answering that but just but it's just to say you know I, I I don't think that there's like a well here's a list of the things I think practitioners should know how to identify it's if you you know if you have the fundamentals and and you have interest in it um get a good book uh you know look at like tutorials and things like that um this is not a plug for my course, but, you know, I, I teach it because I think that it works for people to understand, you know, psychology, take a course like that, or take their step on, uh, on then and, you know, different places, but just get that fundamental and then you'll feel a lot better. Even if you're not, you know, the goal is not to make you a pathologist, but to get you more comfortable with what you're seeing and not just like freak out when you put the slide up on this, on the microscope. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think sometimes, and this it holds true for like the cytologies I do on a daily day, a daily day, a day to day basis, <laughs> um, is sometimes when I'm talking to practitioners and I'm teaching about managing cases, I'll tell veterinarians, it's fine. If you can even get down to, I can identify yeast and bacteria. Like mm -hmm. if that's all you can do and you can rule out things or you can rule yeah. you know, simple things in like, that's fantastic. Like, do mm -hmm. I think every vet has to be able to identify acantholytic keratinocytes? No, I mean, it's great. And it's actually pretty easy to kind of pick up on, but if you can at least guide where you need to go, just like you said, like if you can at least guide, okay, it's not a mast cell tumor, you know, it's mm -hmm. not 
God help me if I ever see a TBT, but (laughs) (laughs) like, that's not been a big inferentialist. But yeah, it's just being able, it's people, I think sometimes feel like cytology or managing cases is an all or none. And it's not like maybe for me to look at a slide and yeah, I can look at a slide and have a pretty good idea. It's probably pimpagus based on the history and based on the sterile neutrophilic inflammation and, and picking up things I think look like acanthalytic keratinocytes. Um, mm-hmm. I still biopsy those cases to get that confirmation. And, um, I don't really care if a general practitioner can say that or not just cause I can, but what I think is cool, if they can at least evaluate a cytology and say, we don't need antibiotics, this is not infected. Something else is going on. So exactly. I should either refer or I should biopsy. So exactly. it's just using, like you said, having those algorithms where you can start to kind of weigh like the pros and cons of what it is, and at least identifying what the next steps are. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Keeping it clinically relevant. That's been my, I mentioned that I'm married to an ER vet, you know, he keeps me grounded and not getting too far into my uh, path head to, you know, go off into all the little, I mean, the things that I love studying, you know, the small details, all the little tiny things, but uh, I really think it's important to just keep cytology in a practical uh, clinically relevant realm. Um, and because who cares, you know, if it doesn't make any difference to the practitioner and to the animal. Um, so just like you said, like if you can get to a place in your thinking, if you're able to, you know, work your way down, I keep mentioning the algorithm, but you know, the algorithmic, um, thought process of, okay, I know that this is I, like, just like you said, I don't, I don't see inflammatory cells here. I see a group of cells that do not look inflammatory. Even if you're like, I'm, pre- I'm pretty worried. These are neoplastic. It gives you, it, just like you said, I think there's a lot of um, insecurity in that. Well, I don't know what it is. Well, you just came up with a ton of information, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You may not know exactly what it is, but you know that you can't just sit on this. Like, you know, that you need to, to take a chunk of tissue and send it in for a histopath or, um, or the, the opposite, you know, the, I just see a ton of inflammatory cells. I don't see scary cells in here. So maybe we'll just keep an eye on this. And if it doesn't go away or whatever, you know, next steps would be, if you see bacteria, treat it, whatever, and then come back to it, if it's still there, reassess, take histopath, whatever. So, um, it's awesome. I get so excited when I see vets get, get that far, um, in their thought process, even if it's not the whole way. It doesn't have to be the whole way. And there's a lot of value in rule outs. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Sometimes I think people don't think, no, understand the utility of cytology and say, well, it's always, you know, submit it for histopath. You know, it's all, that's always the last comment. Well, it, there's, um, you know, comment on the reports. Uh, but there's a lot of value in the rule outs. You know, it's, it, it's not, it doesn't look like this. So you're not going to take that path uh clinically, it doesn't look like this. You're not going to go down that route. Um, so, you know, maybe we don't know exactly what it is yet, but there's a lot of things we know it's probably not. Um, and that can be really valuable too. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of actually led a little bit into one question. I do want to make sure we get into, um, and that is the main characteristics of malignancy or neoplastic cells. And we can kind of identify this again, more in like, say a round cell population, um, I know there's lots of different ways we can branch off with this, but what are just even some of the broad things you're looking for? Say if a veterinarian's looking at a slide and they aren't going to feel, and I, I mean, I'm limited on the ones I'll call. I mean, I'll feel pretty comfortable with plasma cytoma, depending, like you said, some, I'm like, ah, <laughs> I don't know. Some, yeah. some of the <laughs> nuclei are eccentric. Some aren't, I don't know. Um, you know, I feel fairly decent about, um, plasma cytoma, histiocytoma, mast cell tumor, and then some actual lymphoma. Cause we do see that, um, in the skin, which I do want to talk a little bit about, but what are just some of the main criterias of malignancy that vets can be looking for, even if they're not necessarily going to make a definitive diagnosis? Yeah. Yeah. So I love that question because you, um, you talked about criteria malignancy and then we kind of are talking about like round cell tumors too. And when we're, uh, criteria malignancy don't really, 
I not, I, I'm trying to think how to say this. They don't really apply to round cell tumors okay. the same way that they apply to epithelial and mesenchymal tumors. So um, when I see uh, a round cell population, I'm going to ask myself which of the five they are based on their characteristics. Is, does it look like lymphoma? Does it look like histiocytoma, TBT, uh, mast cell tumor, or what am I missing? Histiocytoma, uh, did I say histiocytoma? Plasma. Plasma cytoma or uh, mast cell tumor, TBT, and lymphoma. Lymphoma, yeah. Um, you said it. And I'm like, oh, I kind stuff. of, I kind of like spaced <laughs> off for a second. Which one did she say? Isn't this our real mom life right here? <laughs> oh, the two I'm people like, who okay. should know what the five round cell tumors are are like, uh, which one? <laughs> I'm so smart. You know, I can't even think of the the last. Uh, yeah. So you look at that round cell population, you go, which of the five is it? And then inherently within those, so once you decide, and again, it's not always that easy, um, but if you can feel like confident that it's say a histiocytoma, that's where it, that's where the thought process ends. It's a histiocytoma and histiocytomas by definition are benign. Plasma cytomas, they are super interesting because they can look wild, like tons of criteria malignancy, which I'll, answer your question on what those are in a second, but, um, but they are inherently benign. So don't that, that is like one of the craziest things to me, how insane plasma cytomas, cutaneous plasma cytomas can look on cytology, like multiple nuclei, tons of anisocytosis and eukaryosis, and they're benign. Like you have to know that, or you would be looking at that going, this is a malignant tumor. So, um, that's kind of the one area with, uh, criteria malignancy with round cell tumors that might jump out at people, but, um, you know, uh, like TBT, for example, we don't see a lot of that in the States, but some, some areas you do and, um, like on the border and that is just inherently a malignant tumor. So it, like those, that's kind of where it ends. You don't really go off into the assessing criteria malignancy for round cell tumors as much as you do for epithelial populations and mesenchymal populations. So if you're looking at a cytology and you're like, okay, this looks like an epithelial population, then you're going to assess for criteria malignancy to tell you whether you think it's benign or malignant. And those things that you're going to look at are things like I just kind of mentioned all the, all the big fancy words, you know, the $10 words that make you feel smart, but uh, anisocytosis, which is different size cells, uh, anisocaryosis, different size nuclei. There's a long list. Um, but I'll just, I'll name off a few. There's, those are two. And then uh, multiple nuclei within the same cell, uh, multiple nuclear or prominent nucleoli. So you can see the nucleoli, multiple nucleoli within the same nuclei. <laughs> we don't like seeing a lot of multiples of things. Uh, my favorite one is anisonucleoliosis, <laughs> which is uh, the fancy word for um, different size nucleoli within the same nucleus. But uh, to keep your listeners from falling asleep while I'm listing all those out, um, the, the main thing is, is that you want to make sure you see multiple of those in a tumor before you start getting super, you know, super worried about a malignant population. So um, the books kind of say you want to see at least three, they're going to be exceptions, they're going to be, you know, scenarios that doesn't apply, but I would just caution that's from looking at a population and going, I see prominent nucleoli, it's malignant. You know what I mean? Cause that you might see that like, and it's not malignant. You want to see multiple before it, it really starts to go, Ooh, this is not good. Okay. No, that's, that really doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, yeah. And it doesn't mean don't take additional steps. I mean, if you see a, a population that looks me a plastic, it's always a good idea to even if the cells are all the same size, nuclear are all the same size, it's not looking quote unquote scary. It's still a good idea to remove, you know, depending on the situation to remove those um, and get histopaths confirmation because cytology is not always hundred percent as we all know, but that's also, you know, really case dependent. Like, you know, where are we talking about different locations can mean different things. Sure. One thing I do um, want to make sure we get to as well, talking about round cell tumors. And I think just because for me, like if I'm actually, you know, seeing more skin masses, you know, we take a lot of like benign follicular, um, 
masses off or little cystic lesions off with our laser. Um, most of the time, you know, for those, I do tend to take them off more than anything, but I'm not seeing the often the crazy ones that are probably large or more concerned, or they have another history, like, like you said, a, the vaccine was given. Um, and round cell tumors I find are really interesting because I think they're beautiful. Like their cytology is really mm-hmm. beautiful. And one thing I wanted to ask you, and I think we can kind of, um, you know, push aside mast cell tumor because, you know, yes, I, I know they don't necessarily have to have as prominent granules, but for the most part, you know, those are, I wouldn't say easy. Cause I've had one where I, I really didn't look like a typical mast cell tumor to me. And then we biopsied and it was, um, but mm-hmm. if we focus on the ones I think can be kind of tricky. Um, and for me, that would be, and I, you've posted about this plasma cytoma, histiocytoma, and then I'd actually like to throw, um, just a little lymphoma in there because I do think sometimes veterinarians forget that there is epitheliotropic lymphoma and that can be nodular. Um, you know, that can look like just lots of little masses and nodules on the skin that can be plaques on the skin that can just be really red scaly skin. So I have absolutely Mm -hmm. aspirated masses or plaques on the skin and in its lymphoma. So if we just Mm -hmm. look at, you don't have to have big lymph nodes with that either. No. And actually I'd say the skin. Yeah. And I'd actually say I oftentimes don't. And that's for, that's really? the population I see though. Right. Cause they're mm-hmm. usually if they're going to have enlarged lymph nodes, they're probably not seeing me. Um, yeah. but I see kind of, I've seen it just be a focal area. Um, like mm-hmm. one little plaque that doesn't look that concerning, but it's scaly and red and it's not responding. And then you biopsy it and it's epitheliotropic lymphoma. Mm-hmm. I've seen like huge nodules across an entire body of a boxer. You can get depigmented nasal planum. So in the world of skin, you know, epitheliotropic lymphoma can kind of do whatever it wants. It can make mm-hmm. your lymph nodes big. It can not make them big. It can be super duper paritic. It can be not paritic at yeah. all. So it's tricky. Yeah. Um, so if we just yeah. look at those three and I know it's going to be difficult to tell for some of them, but what are just some of the main quick tips you have about differentiating between those three round cell tumors? Between lymphoma, plasma cytoma and mast cell? In histiocytoma, we can kind of brush brush mast cell tumor off. Yeah. Um, So they can look very similarly. So it's not that you're always going to end up with a, oh, this is clearly this or that. That The term I use is overlapping features. So if I have a a case where I uh, am not sure, I'll end it in my report with, you know, these, these cells have overlapping features between cell types, which is my fancy way of saying, I don't know, and <laughs> you need to take it off. Uh, um, but just in general, the the different characteristics that you might see cytologically between those, um, one with histiocytomas, they tend to have more cytoplasm than say lymphoma. Uh, some people will say they look like a fried egg. And I think that's because the cytoplasm oftentimes goes actually around the whole nucleus. Uh, not always, but you can see that kind of whole periphery around the nucleus versus your plasma cytoma, which their nuclei are typically eccentric, meaning off to the side. Um, so you're going to get that, that offset nucleus. Uh, lymphomas, and I'm going to just talk about, so like right now I'm talking about cytoplasm between the three of them. Um, lymphomas, they have, uh, lymphocytes have just a little tiny bit of cytoplasm typically. Uh, sometimes they can have a little bit more, but most often they have just a really small sliver of cytoplasm. Um, histiocytomas have usually have a lighter color cytoplasm than uh, lighter blue than your plasma cytomas and lymphomas. They're going to be a little bit darker blue. Uh, Plasma cells oftentimes have a little clear spot right next to the nucleus that um, is the Golgi zone, but not always, <laughs> just to be obnoxious, they don't always. And um, that trips people up a lot. They'll say, well, I don't see a, a clear spot next to the nucleus, so it's not a plasma cell. They don't always. And just to make life more complicated, you can actually have lymphomas that have that clear spot too. Um, so this is really again, like they can have similar characters. You have to take all of them into consideration, all, everything that the cells are showing. Um, a, something that's sort of unique to plasma cells is they, a lot of times will have varying numbers of binucleated or even trinucleated cells. Uh, so you might see 
a, like I'll have a, a slide up and I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is a histiocytoma or a plasma cytoma. And then I'm looking around and I'm starting to notice like a, a fair number of binucleated cells. I might, that might make me think, mm, I think this might be a plasma cytoma or maybe I'm seeing enough to just straight up definitively diagnose it. Um, so uh, let's see what else. Uh, what about placement oh, of the nucleus? One thing I know that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so like I was saying with histiocytoma, it's typically more central. And so you're going to have that that ring around the of cytoplasm around the nucleus, but they can be a little off center, um, but they, they typically are more centralized, the nucleuses. With plasma cytomas, they're typically off to the side um, and lymphomas are more central too. Um, one thing that I see, which is kind of cool about histiocytomas is that they have a high, um, uh, they, they tend to have mitotic figures inside their, inside them, which is neat because a lot of times people think mitotic figures mean malignant and that is not true. Um, you definitely with highly active malignant tumors can have a higher percentage of mitotic figures, but histiocytomas are a perfect example of a benign tumor that characteristically will have notable mito mitotic figures. <laughs> so if you see that, don't let it freak you out and think, well, this can't be a histiocytoma because there's mitotic figures. It's actually pretty common. Um, and histiocytomas can happen in older dogs. How often do you see that in your practice, histiocytomas in older dogs? I would definitely say we see them more commonly in younger dogs, but I absolutely yeah. do see them. And then the concern is why, you know, like, why are they developing them? And I would say, um, sometimes those are the ones where traditionally we think, oh, just watch them and they'll go away. This is super anecdotal, but I do feel like the ones I see in older dogs are sometimes the ones that are really stubborn and they don't mm -hmm. like, we do end up eventually yeah. punching them off or, you know, taking them oh, off like for a doesn't get it. Yeah. Like they just so, kind of hang out. I knew a uh, I worked with a surgeon that said the same thing from a clinical standpoint. He felt like in older dogs, they were not as quick to resolve or they wouldn't resolve at all. And then my question to myself when I hear that is, well, are they actually not histiocytomas and they're one of the local, you know, they have kind of an appearance of histiocytoma and then it's actually a plasma cytoma. And sometimes it can be really hard to tell in histopath sure. even. I mean, I think that we think about histopath as like, the end all be all, but the anatomic pathologists sometimes have trouble differentiating too. And you can get into the special stains and stuff, but a lot of times people don't elect for that. So, um, you know, I'm thinking, well, was it a histiocytoma or was it actually a plasma cytoma, which plasma cytomas are common in old dogs and they won't go away. Um, but nonetheless, I think it probably holds true that, you know, it's cool that you're saying that because I've, I've kind of, I've said that to other veterinarians when they've mentioned that about older dogs with histiocytomas, they say, well, should we take it off? And I'm like, I would, because it, I've heard that they aren't as quick to go away in older dogs, but, um, or they might not resolve at all like they do in younger dogs. Yeah. I leave it up to owners. Like I kind of say, you know, we could nothing wrong to watch, but I don't want to get like bigger. Cause the concern of is, is, mm -hmm. you know, even if it's inherently benign, if it's going to be something that eventually gets bigger and problematic for the pet, then that's still an issue. Um, and I, yeah, yeah a lot of things you say, I think were super, super helpful and it is hard to know. Um, sometimes even looking at them under the microscope, you know, for us as people who look at them, you more mm -hmm. so as far as around cell tumors go, but I mean, I've even had, um, cytologies in my general practice of doing clinical dermatology where I look and I'm like, that's weird. Are those melanin granules or those little cocks mm -hmm. you know, like we all have things that trip us up. Um, there's yeah. not, there's a reason we're reading these, you know, as people that have to evaluate the entire case and ask questions and, you know, analyze because mm -hmm. it's not that cut and dry. And the last question I wanted to ask you on this episode, um, I feel like there's like so much we could talk about, but <laughs> I brushed off mast cell tumors because I was going to kind of save them as their own entity for the end. So when we talk about mast cell tumors, I'd love to give your opinion because there's all this discussion, right? About when you take them off and margins and grading them. And, you know, I know a lot mm -hmm. of that's done on the histopath level, but do you think there's any indication when you get a sample of a mast cell tumor that could tell you if it's a more aggressive form or not? 
Yeah. Yeah. So great question. They are tricky little things, <laughs> mast cell tumors. And uh, obviously you're seeing them a lot in practice. So um, important to kind of understand how they're going to behave. At the end of the day, I am not in the camp of trying to grade. Um, there's actually been some, some relatively recent papers that talk about grading mast cell tumors on cytology. I think most pathologists are not doing that yet. I think it's something that we really wish we could do. It would be really helpful for the clinician, but it's not something that I personally feel comfortable trying to do at this point, just because I don't feel like there's enough um, in the literature. There haven't been, it hasn't been studied enough to make me feel comfortable that it would be, um, you know, uh, that it would be a, a good thing for the clinician. Like, I just don't, I think we need more. So I always will recommend that removing them and submitting them for histopath for that grading information. But, um, but yes, there are some things that can make you go, I'm worried that this is going to be a higher grade. And for me, when I see those on cytology, I always put that in the report because I know that's important to the clinician to know like margins and stuff, which that's out of my, you know, surgical removal and stuff. Sometimes I have vets ask me like, how many fascial planes and stuff should I? remove this out like call an oncologist because I don't know um but but uh yeah so some of the things that I would look for when I'm when I'm thinking about well is this or things that, that might concern me if I'm seeing that it might be a higher grade or more aggressive tumor one is um poor granulation so you were mentioning you had a case that you were like you weren't thinking about a mast cell tumor mm -hmm. because probably because it didn't have granules I'm assuming because that's kind right. of a giveaway um, and it was, and, and it was not like, it was a huge mass on a toe. And I was like, this yeah. looks not good, but it was MCT was not on my radar. And then the biopsy yeah. was like MCT. Yeah. 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 I mean, that happens. And it, what there's kind of two reasons you can have a mast cell tumor that doesn't have visible granules to you. One is because you're using diff quick and the granules just didn't stain well with DiffQuick. That is a potential thing that can happen with DiffQuick. DiffQuick is a wonderful stain. This is not a reason to get rid of DiffQuick. And most mast cell tumors are going to stain just fine. But there are going to be cases where for whatever reason, I don't, there's no rhyme or reason to it, that particular tumor's granules did not stain well with your DiffQuick and you're going to be potentially fooled by, you know, like you're not going to see the granules. The other scenario is, is that the cells are just inherently not granulated because they're so nasty that they, they just aren't even, they don't even know how to do their normal things anymore, including make, make their granules. So they, uh, so they're just not going to have a lot of granules. Those are the ones that, that are worrisome to me that they're more, um, aggressive because, they're just not even doing any other normal cell functions anymore, like making granules. And that's not good. Um, so that's why we always ask clinicians to make sure that they send in at, at least a couple um, unstained slides, because if you want to look at your cytology house and then send it out to a pathologist, that's awesome. I love when vets do that. It lets them practice. Um, it lets them get some preliminary information about what's going on, but send that stained slide in with your slides because it's gonna, it, I wanna see that one too. It's definitely good to send that in. I get that question a lot. It's okay if it has oil on it, just send it in. Um, but definitely send in some that were unstained also because in the lab, we have stains that are very similar to DiffQuick, but they don't have that potential problem of not staining the granules. So if I'm looking at a tumor and I can tell it's mast cell, or mast cell tumor because I can see some that are granulated, but a lot of them are not. I know it's not an issue of stain because I'm using a stain that doesn't have that problem. And then I can make the, the statement, I'm worried that this is higher grade um, because of that poor granulation. It's not a matter of stain. Um, it's trickier in the hospital, obviously, because most people are using DiffQuick and then you're like, well, how would I know in practice if it's a stain issue or a poor granulation issue? And you, you may not. Um, but there are other things too that you would look at. So if you, we talked about how um, criteria of malignancy doesn't necessarily apply to, uh, to round cell tumors. That's not entirely true because if you, if you have a mast cell tumor that has a ton of atypia, meaning criteria of malignancy, so you're seeing like 
multinucleate cells, any cystitis, any karyosis, whatever, then again, you might be going, I'm worried that this is a higher grade tumor. Now I will say I've seen plenty of super nasty mast cell tumors that looked like happy, you know, they looked like normal little mast cells, like one little nucleus, no big deal. And then it's everywhere. It's spread everywhere. Um, so you can't really go, oh, they look like happy mast cells. I'm not worried about those being high grade. But when you do see a lot of atypia, it, it, it worries me, if that makes sense. Um, and then the last thing would be location. So as you know, like location matters with mast cell tumors. Um, I honestly don't know all the location rules, um, but I know that the ones that present around the uh, like prepuce in our um, male dogs and I think in female dogs, like they're uh, like the vulvar ones are, pre are bad too. I think those, I, I don't, I would, I should look this up. I wonder if anybody studied that, but I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they have because that's a, a thing that they just tend to be more aggressive when they're in those certain locations. So um, <laughs> I need to look that up, see what study is. <laughs> see, now it's bugging you. That. Yeah, those, the location. <laughs> I know, now I'm like, I just said that and I have nothing to back that up with. Um, but it's true. I know that they do tend to behave more aggressively there. So, you know, the inference is that they're higher grade, higher, more, uh, higher tendency to be higher grade in those locations. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that would be one, that would be one potential indicator that you should be a little concerned about high grade too. And when they're kind of spreading, like when they're not an actual mass, cause you've seen yeah. those, I'm sure yeah. where they're like, there's not even a mass there. Like the leg is just big and red and then you find somewhere to aspirate and it's a mast cell tumor, like whole leg. Yeah. You know, we put our thinking cap on, like we can probably no figure boy, out no. that that's not a benign process. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily those ones end up seeing oncology, not me most of the time, but I've definitely seen pictures and, you know, yeah, that's no way. Bueno. No, luckily most of the ones I see, scary. they tend to be, you know, pretty low grade because it's almost like incidental. Like they're not coming to us necessarily for the tumor. Yeah. It's like a dog I've been managing for a while. And then the owner's like, Oh, what do you think of this? So we're fortunate. Yeah, sure. And I'm kind of the same way. Like sometimes beyond removal, I of little, you know, simple ones. Um, my knowledge yeah. isn't even that great because we don't tend to see them because I do think vets are, you know, good about having that on their radar and, and aspirating concern for mast cell tumors and then either taking them off and sending them in or getting them to an oncologist. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pass the baton to the oncologist. That's, that's an, as I've go, gone along in my career, I've, I've gotten more comfortable with saying, I don't know, because I don't study that. Yeah. So it's not that I feel, you know, and it's same with vets, you know, it's like, this is all, this is what I know. And somebody else can, I can pass the baton to somebody else that knows more in this area, but I'm, I feel the same. I mean, I'm totally comfortable being like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Call, call somebody that does that all day long. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Especially cause we see chronic skin cases. We get clients all the time that ask like, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Someone asked me about like a vaccine protocol and it's like, Oh, pfft. My, yeah. <laughs> my dog has a vet. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't haven't cut into an abdomen. I think someone asked us like we'd neuter or spay and I was like, absolutely not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I got a, I got a Facebook message from a high school, you know, friend like those, one of those, it's like, I, I, uh, I have a worm question, you know, that, and I love it because I can say, I, I have no idea. And that, because I don't know anything about deworming or anything nope. anymore. Like go take your dog to your vet, but nope. yeah. Anyhow, it's, it's a <laughs> you general practitioners are very amazing. Different. We yes. very much like yeah. being focused and we get the privilege to say, we don't know. I know you guys don't get yeah. to do that. Oh my gosh. They have to know everything about everything. I seriously, I, I, I'm not even just saying this to blow smoke. Like I I'm in awe of general practitioners and everything they have to know. Yep. So yeah, for sure. Well, this has been so much fun. I do um, one really quick thing. So I know we've had a, a yeah. lot to talk about and could keep talking, but I want you to be a quick guinea pig for me because okay. I, <laughs> I've only, I don't I'm like surprises, fun. Ashley. <laughs> yeah. I saved it for the end after you've gotten to do all yeah. your fun stuff and get your stuff out. Um, but <laughs> I have had an idea of what I want to start doing on the podcast. This could sink or swim. We will see. Um, super quick. Okay. But I'm going to call this portion of the podcast, I think, the deep scrape. 
And I, <laughs> superficial scrape just sounded too hard to say, but I'm just going to do, um, as I have people in the podcast, besides talking about what we love, I just think it's fun to end on oh, something fun and positive in a way for, yeah. you know, our listeners to get to know the people on the podcast better. And I don't mind answering, you know, some of these questions either. So I literally wrote down yeah. right before we got on a few like quick, fun, little rapid round type questions that you get okay. to do completely unrelated to clean path. Well, okay. that's not I'm true. Scared. The first one that's is scared. related. The first one is related to Clean Path. So we have four okay. super easy, quick, give your answer. I'm ready for give it. a little explanation. Okay, ready? One, okay. what is your favorite cell, Clean Path Kate? What is my favorite cell? Yep. Uh my favorite cell. I can't you cannot that's that's too uh <laughs> it's not like asking your favorite child. Yeah. How can I choose? Um, I really like, uh, transitional cell carcinomas where they have the big pink blobs in the cytoplasm called melamed Wolinsky bodies, but they're just these gorgeous, huge pink magenta. Oh, hold on. I love those, but I love squamous papillomas. They, the coelocytes, like the big, uh, purple pinky, uh, cells. I love those. And of course the eosinophils. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't pick eosinophils? (laughs) Yeah. Eosinophil is definitely like, I was going to say mine, I would be the same. I had to pick two like eosinophil and then acanthalytic keratinocyte just because it's one of those things where it's just a dermatologist. Yeah. They come in and they're like antibiotics didn't work. And then I see like rafts of acanthalytic keratinocytes and I get so excited that I kind of tell them what's going on. Um, Okay. Number two, drink of choice. It does not have to be alcoholic, but what is your drink of choice? Well, it is alcoholic. I prefer. <laughs> a- <laughs> I was just giving it out. I don't want anyone to feel pressured. Uh, I love craft beer and I uh, am really into dunkles and like brown craft beers. But uh, yeah, I'm it's cold right now. So I'm really liking like brown sugar cream ales. Ooh, very good. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Um, if I could have a superpower, it would be to, um, (laughs) that's a good question. I'm hesitating to say like, to be able, you know, the, uh, like be able to eat as much ice cream as I want and and never gain weight. Cause that's just so like obnoxious. Um, but, uh, probably to be able to have microscopic eyes <laughs> not to be a nerd I mean but it's true like I, I think it would be really neat to be able to just like you know like the google what are they the google, google glasses google but inside goggles. my inside my eyeballs yeah that's a weird that's a weird uh I'm sure I could come up with a better superpower that's the one that comes to, to mind you know what mine is and these are all meant to be really fast so it's not like you've been able to think about it but as yeah. I was writing them I thought and I think I came up with a good answer for me and I, I wish I could teleport. Like I wish I, if I could just, yeah. especially cause we don't live by our family here and probably it's cause I haven't been on a yeah, plane. That's a good a one. Year. Like if I could just say, yeah. and I love to travel, if I could be like, okay, I want to be in France, like in five seconds. Like, I think that would be my okay. ultimate superpower. I like that. Yeah. I'm going to steal that too, because steal like it. we were it's talking yours. about, but cause I don't like to fly. So I, I, I would like to just get there and not have to do the whole on the plane process. See, I actually like to fly, I think, because my dad was in the Air Force and he's a pilot. And now, especially because I have two toddlers, this is why I miss Mm. traveling is that um, get away for a minute. When I was on a plane and it was like, even if a kid was crying, but I had to be responsible for it, like I could commiserate and help, but it wasn't like me, you know, mine. Yeah. Like just the fact that like my responsibility is only myself. And I can just watch a movie yeah. on my phone or I can read. Um, I don't yeah. mind it. Once it gets over like two or three hours, then I am over it. But um, it yeah. Uh, and I'm, then, I'm jealous of that. I wish that I could do that because I'm usually listening to noise canceling headphones with the same like calming music on repeat aw. and asking for, uh, you know, a craft beer, a craft beer. <laughs> <laughs> to calm down, <laughs> rocking back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> we all have our vices. I um, know. I know. And then the last one, and this is just like a nice kind of way to end for the people who have listened to that podcast episode and does not have to be related to ClinPath, but what's just your best advice for people in the veterinary industry right now? Um, 
I think, I mean, this sounds, again, it sounds a little corny, but I think it's really true. I think that we all really need to be helping each other. Um, and uh, especially in kind of just societally where we're at, you know, it, it's, it's important to just be mindful of everybody trying to do their best. Nobody trying to be better than anybody else. Everybody just continuing to um, like, keep in mind our oath, which is to help animals and, um, that does not mean you don't need to have boundaries. Cause that would be another thing that I would say everybody should be uh, mindful of their boundaries, um, both with, uh, clients and, you know, other external things that are at times for you. Um, something that I've been focusing on in the past, uh, year or so is just being really conscientious of how I'm spending my time. And, um, like we were talking about kind of being, uh, okay with, with just setting those healthy boundaries, but, um, but, you know, with that said, just when you are interacting with colleagues and just be, just be as helpful as you can stop judging. You know, that's one thing in my Facebook group that is really important to me in the coffee house is just everybody is um, helpful and uh, recognize that we're, none of us are, none of us know everything and we're all just learning and we're all doing our best to help, help animals at the end of the day. And that's what we should be focusing on. So yeah, just be just be nice. We're all, it's easy to, to get, uh, to get kind of lost in the sea of text, but when you're actually seeing somebody face to face, like, like, you know, it just, it just, it's a different world right now. So everybody just needs to, needs to keep aware of that. Just, uh, our, our, uh, interactions with each other. I love it. That sounds a little preachy, but you know what I'm saying? No, no, it's, it's wonderful. And we can't hear it enough. I mean, I think my word for 2021 has been community and it's just, if we have Mm -hmm. not learned more than ever in the last year that we need our community, um, and that we're Mm -hmm. all going through hard times and that includes clients. Like sometimes when clients come in and they're frustrated, you know, I just try to tell myself and my staff, like, you never know what people are going through. Like if you have a normal life right now, it's hard, let alone anything mm-hmm. happening to you or your family mm-hmm. or your friends. So yeah. you everything. Yeah, and you don't have to be alone. Like you don't have to just try to do everything yourself. You know, and like you said, community, it's, it's okay that you don't know, you know, the answer. It's okay to reach out for help. Like you don't have to be the end all be all. We're, we're all, we're all trying to make this work together. So, yeah. you know, reach out. <laughs> totally. Well, and I have to say thank you as far as being part of my community today that you agreed to give up so much of your time um, to be on the podcast. Oh, it was fun. Precious time. And, but you know, we're two vet nerds that could talk hours <laughs> about this stuff. This is actually fun for us. So, yeah. but thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you for inviting me. It was a blast. Yeah. Well, wasn't that a ton of fun? You could just see how much Dr. Baker loves cytology. We're all kind of just giddy um, recording this episode. And we honestly could have stopped talking forever, which I guess you really, truly realize how much of a nerd you are about cytology when you have fun actually discussing it. So I hope you guys just took away a lot of information that you are capable of reading cytology in-house and I encourage you if even if you're going to send a slide out read it like stain it look at it ahead of time just like Dr. Baker talked about it can just give you a wealth of information even if you still want that validation of having a pathologist look at it as always reach out to me at the derm vet on Facebook or Instagram I have some fun things coming you guys that's going to be announced on my email newsletter so if you go the to thedermvet.com. You can sign up to be on that newsletter and please leave some positive reviews for the podcast. It helps more than you know. It gets this podcast out to more and more people. Take care.